Section 3 of A Commentary on the Epistle to the Romans by John Calvin, translated by Francis Sibson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Romans 1, verses 1 to 17. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul. I should be disposed entirely to omit mentioning the name of Paul, because the importance of the subject does not require us to dwell long upon it, and nothing can be added which has not been repeatedly stated by other interpreters. Since, however, I can easily satisfy one class of my readers without much fatiguing the rest, this question shall be discussed in a few words. Luke himself, Acts 13, 7 and 9, confutes the opinion of those which suppose the apostle to have assumed this name as a trophy of the subjugation of the proconsul Sergius to Christ, for he proves that name to have been given our apostle before that period nor do i think it probable he was thus named on his embracing christianity i think this conjecture was approved by augustine merely on account of its affording him an opportunity to pursue a train of shrewd philosophical remarks in his discourse to show that the proud saul had become a little disciple of christ there is greater probability in the opinion of origen who considers him to have had two names for it is not inconsistent with the appearance of truth to suppose that the family name of saul had been given him by his parents to mark his religion and kindred and the surname paul had been also added as a proof of his right to be a roman citizen because indeed they did neither wish this honour which was highly esteemed at that time to be concealed in their son nor did they set so high a value upon it as to cancel the mark of his descent from israel perhaps too he therefore used the name of paul more frequently in his epistles because it was more distinguished and common among the churches to which he wrote more highly valued in the roman empire and less known by his relations for it was his duty not to neglect the avoiding of all unnecessary suspicion dislike and hatred which were then attached to the jewish name both at rome and in the provinces and to abstain from everything by which the rage of his countrymen could be inflamed or his own personal safety endangered servant of jesus he distinguished himself by these titles to the purpose of securing authority to his doctrine he effects this in two ways by asserting in the first place his call to the office of an apostle and in the next by informing them that it was connected with the church at rome for it was of great importance not only that he should be considered to be an apostle by a call from god but should be known also to be destined for the church of rome he therefore says he is a servant of christ called to the office of an apostle for the purpose of intimating that he had not rushed into such a situation in a rash manner he immediately after states that he was separated as a means of giving stronger confirmation to the fact of his not being one of the people but a distinguished apostle of the lord in this sense he had descended from a general term to a species, since an apostleship is a particular kind of ministry. 
for every one who sustains the office of teaching is ranked among christ's servants but apostles are much superior to all others in their degree of honour but the separation which he afterwards mentions expresses both the end and use of his apostleship for he was desirous briefly to point out the design with which he had been called to that function the title therefore of the servant of christ which he applies to himself was enjoyed by him in common with all other teachers but by claiming that of an apostle he prefers himself to others since however a person who of his own accord thrusts himself into an office is entitled to no authority he admonishes us that he is appointed of god the following therefore is the sense of the passage i paul am not any ordinary minister of christ but an apostle constituted such by the calling of god not by any rash effort of my own then follows a more clear explanation of his apostolic office by which he was appointed to preach the gospel for i do not agree with those who refer the calling mentioned by the apostle to the eternal election of god understanding by it either his separation from his mother's womb stated by himself in galatians chapter one verse fifteen or his destination to preach to the gentiles related by luke for he simply glories in his having god as the author of his office that no one may think he assumes this honour to himself of his own private rashness and presumption it must here be observed that all are not fit for the ministry of the word which requires a special calling nay it is the duty of those who consider themselves as possessing the best qualifications to take care lest they hurry into it without a call we shall consider in another place what the calling of apostles and bishops mean observing particularly that preaching the gospel is the office of an apostle this evidently shows the folly of those dumb dogs who are distinguished for nothing else but a mitre a crozier and such like mummeries while they yet boast of themselves as the successors of the apostles the name of servant signifies nothing more than a minister for it relates to an office i mention this to remove the vain fancy of such as without any reason indulge in philosophical observations upon the word servant while they imagine the bondage of moses to be opposed to that of christ which he had before promised paul establishes the faith of the gospel by its antiquity because the force of a doctrine is much diminished by novelty as if he had said that christ had not dropped down suddenly upon the earth or introduced a new kind of doctrine never heard of before since he himself together with his gospel had been promised and always expected from the beginning of the world in the next place because antiquity is often fabulous he adds witnesses and those likewise of a classical character namely the prophets of god with a view to remove all suspicion in addition to this he states in the third place that their testimony is supported by proper signature even by the holy scriptures we may hence infer what the gospel is since we are taught that it was not preached or promulgated but only promised by the prophets if the prophets therefore promised the gospel the consequence is that it was exhibited when the lord was finally manifested in the flesh all who confound the promises with the gospel are evidently deceived since the gospel is properly the solemn preaching of the manifestation of christ in whom the promises themselves are exhibited concerning his son a remarkable passage which teaches us the whole gospel is contained in christ so that every one who removes a single foot from christ withdraws himself from the gospel for since he is the living and express image of the father we need not be astonished that he alone is proposed to us as the object to whom all our faith is directed and in whom it consists this therefore is a certain description of the gospel by which paul intimates what it summarily comprehends
I have translated the following words, Jesus Christ, in the same case with his son, because I consider it to agree better with the context. We must hence draw the following conclusion, that every person who makes a proper advancement in the knowledge of Christ acquires an acquaintance with the whole scope of the gospel, while, on the contrary, all such as desire to obtain wisdom out of Christ act the part not only of fools but of madmen. Who was made... It is our duty to seek for two things in Christ, if we are desirous to find salvation in him, divinity and humanity. The divinity contains power, righteousness, and life, in itself, which are communicated to us by the humanity. Wherefore the Apostle hath expressly mentioned both in the sum of the gospel, because Christ has been exhibited in the flesh, and declared himself to be the Son of God in it. As John also, John one fourteen, after he had said that the word was made flesh, adds, he was the glory as of the only begotten Son of God, in the flesh itself. The special notice which he takes of the family and origin of Christ, from his ancestor David, is not without its use, for this particular sentence directs our attention to the promise, and removes all doubt of his being the very person whom was formerly promised. The promise made to David had acquired so great celebrity as to leave no doubt of its being a commonly received opinion among the Jews that the Messiah was called the Son of David. The position, therefore, that Christ was descended from David contributes to the certainty of our faith. He adds, according to the flesh, for the purpose of convincing us that he possessed something superior to the flesh, which he had brought down from heaven, and had not received from David, namely the glory of the deity, which is afterwards mentioned. Moreover, by these expressions, Paul not only declares the true essence of flesh in Christ, but manifestly distinguishes between his divine and human nature, thus refuting the impious dotage of Servetus, who imagined Christ's flesh was compounded of three uncreated elements. Declared the Son of God, or determined, if such a translation meets your approbation, as if he had said, the virtue of the resurrection resembles the decree by which he was pronounced the Son of God, as in Psalm 2.7, This day I have begotten you, for that begetting is referred to knowledge. Although some make this passage to comprehend three separate proofs of the divinity of Christ, understanding first by virtue miracles, secondly the testimony of the Spirit, and lastly the resurrection of the dead, I prefer joining them together, and refer all these three to one in the following manner. Christ was determined to be the Son of God, by openly exerting his truly heavenly power, which was also that of the Spirit, when he rose from the dead. This power is understood when it is sealed to the hearts of believers by the same Spirit. The expression of the Apostle supports this interpretation, for he says, Christ had been declared by power, because, indeed, the power peculiar to God had shone forth in him and afforded an undoubted proof of his divinity. This also displays itself in his resurrection, as in another passage, 2 Corinthians 13.4. The same Paul, while he confesses that the weakness of the flesh had appeared in Christ's death, commends the power of the Spirit in the resurrection. This glory, however, is not made known to us until the same Spirit seals it to our hearts. We can have no doubt that Paul includes also the evidence experienced by individuals in their own hearts with the admirable power of the Spirit which Christ manifested by rising from the dead, because he expressly mentions sanctification as if the Apostle had said, The Spirit, by sanctifying individual believers, ratifies and confirms that proof of its power which it once displayed. For the Scripture often applies epithets to the Spirit of God adapted to the present subject. Thus he is denominated by our Lord, 
John 14.7, the spirit of truth, from the effects stated in the passage. Moreover, divine power is therefore said to have shone forth in the resurrection of Christ, because he rose, as he has frequently testified, by his own power. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. John 2.9. No one taketh away my life from me. John 10.18 for he obtained a victory over death to which he had yielded according to the weakness of his flesh not by any precarious assistance but by the heavenly operation of his own spirit by whom we have received after finishing his description of the gospel which he inserted as recommendatory of his office he now returns to assert his calling to which he observed a strong testimony had been afforded the romans grace and apostleship are separated by the figure hypology and mean either apostleship freely bestowed or the grace of the apostleship he thus intimates that his appointment to such a rank had been wholly the work of divine beneficence not of his own dignity for though in the presence of the world his office is accompanied with almost nothing but dangers labours hatred and infamy yet with god and his saints it is considered one of no vulgar and ordinary dignity and therefore justly esteemed to be of grace the following interpretation if the reader prefers it conveys the same sense I have received grace to be an apostle. The expression in the name is explained by Ambrose of his appointment to preach the gospel instead of Christ, according to the following passage, We are ambassadors for Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.20. The opinion of those, however, who consider name to mean knowledge, appears to be more sound because the gospel is preached for this very purpose, 1 John 3.23, that we may believe in the Son of God and Paul himself is called an elect vessel to carry the name of Christ among the Gentiles, Acts 9.15. The expression, therefore, for the name conveys the same sense as if Paul had said, that I may manifest the character of Christ. To the obedience of faith. That is, we have received the commandment to carry the gospel to all the Gentiles with a view to their obeying it by faith he in turn admonishes the romans of their duty from the design of his calling as if he had said my part indeed is to perform the office entrusted to me namely the preaching of the word it is yours to listen to the word with all obedience unless you wish to make the calling which i have received from the lord to be of none effect whence we infer that the command of god is obstinately resisted and his whole order perverted by those who reject in an irreverent and contemptuous manner the preaching of the gospel for its very design is to compel us to obey god the nature of faith deserves our notice on this occasion which is therefore distinguished by the name of obedience because the lord calls us by the gospel and we answer him by faith when he calls us as on the contrary unbelief is the source of all our stubbornness against god i prefer the translation into the obedience of faith rather than for obedience since the last interpretation can only be applied improperly and figuratively although it is once used acts six seven for faith is properly that by which the gospel is obeyed among all nations among whom etc it was not sufficient for him to receive the appointment of an apostle unless his ministry had respect to the disciples and on this account he adds that his apostleship extends to all nations afterwards he more plainly calls himself an apostle of the romans when he says that they also were comprehended in the number of the nations to whom a minister was given 
Moreover, the apostles receive a common command concerning the preaching of the gospel through the whole world, for they are not appointed as shepherds and bishops over certain churches. But Paul, beside the general province of the apostolic function, was appointed by special authority a minister for preaching the gospel among the nations. The circumstance of his being prevented to pass by Macedonia and to speak the word in Mysia, Acts 16.6, is not opposed to this statement, as if limits were thus fixed to the extent of his boundaries, because it was necessary for him to go at that time to another place, and the harvest there was not yet fully ripe. The Called of Jesus Christ he assigns a reason which applies more immediately to themselves, because indeed the Lord had now afforded in them a proof by which he declared that they were called to the communication of the gospel. Whence it followed, if they were desirous of the continuance of their own calling, that they ought not to reject the ministry of Paul, who had been appointed by the same election of the Lord. The sentence called of Jesus Christ I therefore consider to be declaratory, as if the word namely had intervened, and it means they are partakers of Jesus Christ by his calling. For they are not only chosen in Christ by their heavenly Father among his sons, who are to be the heirs of an everlasting life, but after their election are committed also to his care and faithful protection as their shepherd. To all that are at Rome... He shows in a beautiful order what deserves to be praised in us. First, that the Lord in his kindness has taken us into his favour and love. Secondly, has called us. Thirdly, has called us to holiness, which praise is finally enjoyed by us if we do not neglect our calling. A very faithful doctrine is here suggested for our consideration, and I leave it after making this short allusion to the meditation of each of my readers. Certainly the praise of our salvation does not, according to St. Paul, depend upon our own power, but is derived entirely from the fountain of God's gratuitous and paternal love towards us, for Paul makes this to be the beginning of God's love to us. What other cause but his own mere goodness can moreover be assigned for his love? On this also depends his calling, by which, in his own time, he seals the adoption in those who were first gratuitously chosen by him. From these premises, the conclusion follows that none truly associate themselves with the faithful who do not place a certain confidence in the Lord's kindness to them, although undeserving and wretched sinners, and being roused by his goodness they aspire to holiness, for he hath not called us to uncleanness but to holiness. 1 Thessalonians 4, 6. Since the Greek admits of being translated in the second person, I see no cause for changing it. Grace and Peace there is nothing, in the first place, deserves more to be desired by us than to have God propitious, which is the meaning of grace. In the second place, the prosperity and success of all our affairs proceed and flow from him, which is the sense of the word peace. For, though everything may appear to smile upon us, if God is angry, our very blessing is changed into a curse. The only foundation, therefore, of our happiness is the kindness of God, which is the source of our enjoying true and solid prosperity, while our very adversity itself promotes our salvation. We understand also by our supplicating peace from the Lord that every blessing we enjoy is the fruit of divine beneficence. Nor ought we to omit mentioning that he at the same time prays for the attainment of those blessings from the Lord Jesus. For our Lord deserves to be treated with this honour, who is not only the servant and dispenser of our Father's kindness to us, but works all things in common with him. The proper meaning, however, of the Apostle is that all the blessings of God come to us by Christ. 
some consider we ought rather to understand the word peace tranquillity of conscience and i grant it sometimes admits this construction but since the apostle was undoubtedly desirous to allude here to the sum of all blessings the first interpretation proposed by Busa suits the passage much better the apostle therefore feeling a desire to pray that the sum of all happiness should be conferred on the pious has immediate recourse as on a former occasion to the fountain itself namely the grace of god which not only is the source of our eternal happiness but the cause of all blessings in this life first i thank my god through jesus christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world for god is my witness whom i serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son that without ceasing i make mention of you always in my prayers making request if by any means now at length i might have a prosperous journey by the will of god to come unto you for i long to see you that i may impart unto you some spiritual gift to the end ye may be established that is that i may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me first i thank here he commences in a manner very suitable to the cause since from reasons derived both from his own character and that of the romans he seasonably prepares them to submit to his instructions when the apostle mentions the renown of their faith an argument is drawn from their own character for he intimates that they were obligated by the public commendation of the churches not to reject the apostle of the lord unless they wished to disappoint the opinion which all men entertained of them such conduct is considered to be inconsistent with good manners and in some measure to resemble a breach of faith as this testimony therefore ought with very good reason to induce the apostle who had conceived a confident opinion of their obedience to undertake according to his office to teach and instruct the romans so they were obligated in turn not to despise his authority he disposes them from a consideration of his own character to submit to his instructions by testifying his sincere love to them and nothing has a more powerful effect to secure confidence in a counsellor than the opinion of his studying and contriving for our interest from sincere affection in the first place it is worthy of remark that he so praises their faith as to refer it to god by which we are taught faith to be the gift of god for if thanksgiving is the acknowledgment of a kindness whoever thanks god for faith confesses it to be his gift and when we find the apostle always commences his rejoicings with thanksgiving we may learn this instruction from it that all our blessings are kindnesses from god we ought also to habituate ourselves to such forms of expression as may rouse us with greater eagerness to acknowledge god to be the giver of all blessings and to excite others at the same time to a similar train of thoughts if it is right to observe this in blessings of small importance we ought to do it much more with respect to faith which is neither an ordinary nor a common gift of god besides we have here an example how thanks ought to be given through christ according to the precept of the apostle hebrews thirteen fifteen showing how we both seek and obtain mercy from the father in his name finally he mentions his own god which is a special privilege of the faithful on whom alone god confers this honour for there is a mutual relation expressed in the promise jeremiah thirty twenty two i will be to them a god and they shall be to me a people though i prefer restricting it to the character which paul supported as an approval of the obedience paid by him to the lord in the preaching of the gospel thus hezekiah calls god 
the god of isaiah when he wishes to give him the character of a true and faithful prophet isaiah thirty seven four he is called by way of excellence the god of daniel because he vindicated the purity of the worship of the most high daniel six nineteen by the whole world the commendation of good men was regarded by paul as that of the whole world in estimating the faith of the romans for unbelievers who rather execrated this faith could not give a sincere or probable testimony concerning it we must therefore understand that the faith of the romans was proclaimed in the whole world by the voice of all believers who could form a proper opinion and give a just decision on this point it was of no importance to find this small and ignoble band of men wholly unknown to the wicked at rome since their judgment had not the smallest weight with paul for god is my witness he shows his love from its effects for had he not been warmly attached to them he would not have commended with so much earnestness their salvation to the lord nor would he have especially desired to promote the same with so much ardour by his own exertion the solicitude and the desire of the apostle are undoubted proofs of his attachment for they can never exist unless they arise from love but since he knew it to be of importance to convince the romans of his sincerity if he wished to establish their confidence in his preaching he confirms it by an oath a necessary method for giving certainty to our discourse when we consider it worth our while to confirm and settle upon a sure foundation whatever is liable to doubt for if an oath is merely an appeal to god for confirming our discourse every one must grant the wisdom of the apostle's oath which he took without infringing the precept of christ hence it is evident that the design of christ was not as the two superstitious anabaptists dream entirely to abolish oaths but rather to restore the true observance of the law for the law while it allows an oath condemns only perjury and unnecessary swearing if therefore we wish to swear properly we should imitate the gravity and devotion which appear in the apostles in taking oaths to understand this form of an oath fully we must consider that while we appeal to god as a witness he is summoned also as a punisher of our sin if we swear deceitfully which paul on another occasion expresses in the following words i call god for a record upon my soul two corinthians one twenty three whom i serve with my spirit for as profane men who make a mock of god are accustomed to appeal to his name as a mere pretext with equal assurance and rashness paul commends his piety in this place with a view to secure for himself the confidence of the romans for such persons as are under the influence of a lively fear and reverential awe of god will tremble to take a false oath paul opposes his spirit to a mere external mask for as many falsely pretend to be worshippers of god who are such only in appearance he bears witness that he worships god from the heart perhaps also he had regard to the ancient ceremonies by which alone the jews appreciated the worship of god he means therefore that although not exercised in ceremonial observances he is nevertheless a sincere worshipper of god as in philippians three three we are the true circumcision who worship god in the spirit and have no confidence in the flesh he boasts therefore of his worshipping god with sincere piety of the heart which is true religion and right worship it was also of importance, as we have already mentioned, with a view to confirm the certainty of his oath, that Paul should testify his piety towards God. For impious persons make a mock at perjury, which pious characters dread more awfully than a thousand deaths. 
for wherever there is a serious fear of god the same reverence of his name must exist it amounts to the same thing as if paul had said that he was well acquainted with the sanctity and religion required in taking an oath while he did not after the example of profane persons call god to witness in a rash manner and his conduct teaches us to entertain such a deep sense of piety whenever we take an oath that the name of christ which we express on our lips may have its own power on our hearts he then proves from a sign namely his ministry in what manner his worship of god does not arise from mere pretence for by his ministry he exhibits the most full proof that he was devoted to the glory of god who denied himself and did not hesitate to undergo all the difficulties of ignominy of poverty of death and hatred for exalting the kingdom of god some explain the sentence as if paul wished to recommend the worship with which he honoured god because it is agreeable to the command of the gospel where a spiritual worship is certainly prescribed but the former interpretation namely his obedience of god manifested by his preaching the word corresponds much better with the context he however distinguishes himself in the meantime from hypocrites who are influenced by another motive than the worshipping of god since most of them are impelled by ambition or something of a similar nature and there is no cause to consider them all as discharging their ministerial duty from the heart and with fidelity the sum is that st paul devotes himself with sincerity to the duty of teaching because the circumstances of his piety which he has mentioned makes it correspond with the present subject hence we deduce a useful doctrine calculated to supply the ministers of the truth with no small courage when informed that by preaching the gospel they perform a worship grateful and precious to god himself for what should prevent them from preaching when they know their labours to be so pleasing to god and approved by him as to be considered a distinguished part of worship he also denominates it the gospel of the son of god by which christ becomes eminent being pointed out in this instance by the father that while the son is glorified he in turn glorifies the father how unceasingly he continues to manifest the increasing force of his love by the constancy of his prayer for it was a striking instance of his affection to find the apostle make mention of the romans in all the prayers he poured forth to the lord the sense of the passage becomes clearer if the adverb always is understood to mean in all my prayers as often as i address god in my supplications i add also the mention of you romans he speaks not of any invocation of god but of prayers to which the saints voluntarily devote themselves having laid aside all other cares for the apostle might often have a sudden ejaculation without remembering the romans but whenever with an express intention and deep meditation he prayed to god his attention was directed to the romans among others he therefore particularly speaks of prayers to which saints devote themselves with determined purpose as we see the lord himself seeking a place of retirement for such an object the frequency or rather the continuance of his habit of praying is intimated by his saying that he devoted himself to prayer without ceasing making request if by any means because it is not probable we shall from our heart study to promote the welfare of that person whom we are not prepared to assist by our labour he now adds that he is ready to testify in the presence of god his love by another argument namely by requesting to be of use to them the full sense of the passage will appear by supplying also and reading as follows making also request 
if by any means i may have a prosperous journey by the will of god and he thus declared that he not only expects prosperity in his journey by the grace of god but he makes the success of his journey to depend on the encouragement and approbation of the lord all our wishes ought to be ordered according to this rule for i long to see you he could although absent confirm their faith by his doctrine but a plan is always best formed when people are present he was therefore desirous to see them he explains also his design in undertaking the trouble of such a journey to have been not his own but their advantage by spiritual gifts he means the powers he possessed either of teaching or of exhortation or of prophecy which he knew he had acquired from the grace of god he hath well marked the lawful use of these gifts by the word impart for different gifts are therefore peculiarly conferred upon each that all may kindly contribute to mutual welfare and convey to one another the powers which each individually possesses romans twelve three one corinthians twelve eleven to the end you may be established he modifies his remarks on communication lest he should appear to consider them as not yet properly initiated into christ and as characters who had not yet learned the first elements of the gospel he says therefore that he was chiefly desirous to afford them his assistance on that point where such as have made the greatest progress still require aid for we all want to be strengthened until we have attained the measure of the stature of the fullness of christ ephesians four thirteen and not satisfied with this proof of his modesty he corrects his remark by showing that he does not usurp the office of teacher without a desire to receive mutual instruction from them as if he had said i am desirous to confirm you according to the measure of grace conferred upon myself that i may receive from your example a new accession to the alacrity of my faith by which we may mutually profit each other see how great moderation appears to reside in his pious breast since he does not refuse to seek confirmation from ignorant learners nor does he state this merely in a dissembling manner for there is none however weak in the church of christ who cannot be of some use for our advance in grace but malignity and pride prevent us from deriving such fruit by mutual and reciprocal instructions such is the nature of our pride such the inebriating effect of our foolish boasting that each of us while he despises and bids adieu to others considers he has a sufficient abundance in himself i translate the greek word with busa exhortation rather than consolation since it agrees better with the context now i would not have you ignorant brethren that oftentimes i purposed to come unto you but was led hitherto that i might have some fruit among you also even as among other gentiles i am debtor both to the greeks and to the barbarians both to the wise and the unwise so as much as in me is i am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at rome also now i would not have you ignorant he now confirms the testimony he had given of his constant supplication to god to allow him on some occasion to visit them since it might have appeared a vain profession if he had neglected to embrace the opportunities which presented themselves for he says the power was wanting not the endeavour having frequently been prevented from this intended purpose of visiting the churches at rome we hence learn that the lord frequently overthrows the plans of his saints with a view to humble them and by such a state of humiliation to keep their minds constantly exercised in looking to his providence 
on which they are thus taught to depend although their plans in a proper sense are not frustrated because they enter into no deliberations without the will of god for it is the daring attempt of impiety to determine on future plans without consulting god as if they could be regulated by our power which conduct st james chapter four verse thirteen severely reproves paul means when he says he had been hitherto hindered that the lord imposed upon him the transaction of more urgent business which he could not omit without injury to the church the impediments of believers and unbelievers differ for the latter feel themselves hindered when they are unable to move from the violent hand of the lord and the former are satisfied to be prevented by some lawful reason and allow themselves to attempt nothing either besides their duty or contrary to edification that i might have some fruit he speaks of the fruit which the apostles were sent by the lord to collect i have chosen you that you may go and bring forth fruit and your fruit may remain john fifteen ten he calls the fruit his own which he collected for the lord not himself because nothing is more the property of the pious than any event which promotes the glory of god with which all their happiness is united he states also that this had befallen him among other nations for the purpose of inspiring the romans with a hope of his arrival not being useless which had been attended with advantage among so many of the gentiles to the greeks and barbarians the wise etc the epithets wise and unwise explain the meaning of greek and barbarian and i retain the words of the apostle without blaming erasmus who translates them learned and ignorant paul draws an argument therefore from his office to show that he must not be blamed for arrogance because he hoped to be of some use in teaching the romans however much they excelled both in learning and prudence and skill since god had determined to make him debtor also to the wise two things are here to be considered first that a heavenly command has destined and offered the gospel to the wise by which the lord may subject all the wisdom and all the ingenuity of the world to himself and make every kind of science and the sublimity of all the arts yield to the simplicity of his doctrine especially because the learned are reduced into discipline with the ignorant and become so tame as to endure those characters to be schoolfellows under christ their master whom they would not before have deigned to receive as scholars in the second place the ignorant ought not by any means to be debarred from this school or the learned to avoid it with a vain fear for if paul was a debtor to the poor and it is to be considered in debt to the very best faith he truly paid what he owed they will therefore in this instance find what they shall be capable of enjoying all teachers have here a rule to follow namely to order themselves in a modest and kind manner to the ignorant and illiterate by such a plan they will quietly endure much absurd conduct and patiently bear with innumerable instances of pride by which they might without such a lesson have been overcome it is however their duty to remember that they are laid under such obligations to the foolish as not by immoderate indulgence to cherish their folly so as much as in me is he concludes what he had hitherto said of his own desire to go to rome since it seemed to be a part of his duty to spread the gospel among them with a view to collect fruit to the lord he manifests his earnest wish to satisfy the call of god as far as he was permitted by the lord for i am not ashamed of the gospel of christ for it is the power of god unto salvation to every one that believeth to the jew first and also to the greek 
for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. I am not ashamed. He here prevents and answers an objection by stating that he pays no regard to the scorn of the wicked, and in passing he embraces this opportunity for commending the dignity of the gospel, that it might not be despised by the Romans. He hints indeed that the gospel is despised by the world when he says he is not ashamed of it himself, and he thus prepares the Romans to bear the dishonour of the cross, that they might not undervalue the gospel, which they saw exposed to the scoffs and taunts of the wicked, while he proves against its opponents how highly it was valued by believers. The power of God, in the first place, if it deserves to be magnified, shines forth in the gospel. If goodness is worthy of being desired and loved, the gospel is the instrument of that goodness, and it ought to be deservedly honoured and esteemed, since veneration is due to the power of God, and we ought to love it in proportion as our salvation is thus secured. Observe also how much Paul attributes to the ministry of the word when he testifies that God in the gospel exerts his power for saving us by its means, for he is not speaking here of any secret revelation, but preaching by the voice. Hence it follows that the power of God is designedly rejected and his liberating hand removed at a great distance by those who withdraw themselves from hearing the word preached. But because he does not work with efficacy in all, but only where the Spirit shines in our hearts as an internal teacher, he therefore subjoins the sentence, To every one that believeth. The gospel is indeed offered to all for salvation, but its power does not everywhere appear and that it is the savour of death to unbelievers arises not so much from the nature of the gospel as from their own wickedness. By showing one way of salvation it cuts off all other confidence, and by withdrawing themselves from this only salvation, the gospel gives them a certain proof of their own ruin. When therefore the gospel invites all indifferently to salvation, it is properly termed the doctrine of salvation." for christ is there offered and his proper office is to save that which had perished and such as refuse to be saved by him experience him in the character of their judge the word salvation is everywhere in scripture opposed simply to death and when it occurs we must consider the subject treated of for when the gospel frees from the ruin and curse of eternal death the salvation secured by it is everlasting life to the jew first and greek under the name Greek, he here comprehends all Gentiles, as the comparison proves, since he was desirous to include all mankind under these two classes. It is probable Paul had chiefly chosen the Greek nation, from whom he denominated all Gentiles, because they were the first after the Jews, who were made partakers of the gospel covenant, and the Jews were better acquainted with the Greeks on account of their vicinity, and the great celebrity of their language." the whole therefore of the gentiles is meant by one part of these the greeks and he thus in general unites jews and gentiles in the participation of the gospel without depriving jews of their degree and rank since they were the first in promise and calling the apostle therefore secures their prerogative for the jews but immediately joins the gentiles although as partakers of the same blessing in an inferior degree for the righteousness of god unto salvation this is an explanation and confirmation of the former sentence, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. 
for if we seek salvation or life with god we must first seek righteousness by which being reconciled to him we may obtain by his being propitious to us that life which consists in his benevolence alone for we must first be necessarily righteous that we may be loved of god for he hates unrighteousness the meaning therefore is that we can obtain salvation by no other method than the gospel since god has nowhere else revealed his righteousness to us which alone frees us from death and this righteousness the foundation of salvation is revealed in the gospel whence the gospel is called the power of god unto salvation in this way we reason from cause to effect again observe how rare and precious a treasure god confers upon us in his gospel namely the communication of his righteousness i understand that to be the righteousness of god which is approved at his tribunal as on the other hand that is generally called the righteousness of man which in the opinion of our fellow-beings is reckoned and esteemed righteousness though it be only smoke yet i doubt not but paul alludes to many prophecies where the spirit everywhere celebrates the righteousness of god in the future kingdom of christ some explain it to mean what is given us of god and i indeed acknowledge the words admit this sense because god justifies us by his gospel therefore he saves us the former sense appears to me more suitable to the context though i do not much dispute concerning this subject it is of more importance that some consider this righteousness to consist not only in the gratuitous remission of sins but partly also in the grace of regeneration but i think we are therefore restored to life because god reconciles us to himself gratuitously as we will afterwards treat more fully in its proper place moreover he now uses the expression by faith who before said to every believer for righteousness is offered by the gospel and perceived by faith he subjoins to faith because in proportion to the advancement of our faith and to our progress in this knowledge the righteousness of god increases in us and its possession is in some measure confirmed and ratified when we first taste the gospel we behold indeed the countenance of god joyful and stretched forth towards us but at a distance the more our knowledge of piety increases we behold the grace of god as if he were making nearer approach to us with greater clearness and in a more familiar manner the opinion of those who think the old and new testament to be here secretly compared is more acute than solid for paul does not in this passage compare the fathers who lived under the law with us but he marks the daily progress of each believer as it is written he proves the righteousness of faith by the authority of the prophet habakkuk for when he prophesies concerning the destruction of the proud he at the same time adds the life of the righteous consists in faith but we do not live in the presence of god except by righteousness whence it follows that our righteousness is placed in faith the future verb points out the solid perpetuity of the life mentioned by him as if he had said it shall not continue for a moment but endure for ever for the wicked also are puffed up with a false opinion of life but when they say peace and security then sudden destruction cometh upon them one thessalonians five three theirs is a shadow which endures only for a moment while the faith of the righteous alone brings everlasting life whence does this arise but from faith leading us to god and placing our life in him for paul would not have quoted this passage in an appropriate manner unless the prophet meant 
that we then stand fast when we rest on God by faith. And he has not indeed ascribed the life of the pious to faith unless so far as they gather themselves together under the protection of their own God while they condemn the pride of the world. The prophet does not indeed professedly treat of this subject, and hence he makes no mention of gratuitous righteousness, but it is sufficiently evident from the nature of faith that this passage suits the present subject. From this method of reasoning we also necessarily infer the mutual relation of faith and the gospel, for because the just is said to be about to live by faith, it follows that such a life is perceived by the gospel. We have now the principal point or hinge of the first part of this epistle, that we are justified by faith through the alone mercy of God. We have not this expressly stated in as many words by Paul, but it evidently appears afterwards from the context that the righteousness which is founded on faith wholly depends on the mercy of God. End of section 3